Good morning. This morning we are talking to an acclaimed journalist and award-winning author who has led a distinguished career at publications like The New Yorker and The Atlantic. He's a graduate of Yale College. His name is George Packer, and he's covered the war in Iraq for The New Yorker from 2003 to 2018, and he presently serves as a staff writer for The Atlantic. And he's going to be a keynote speaker here on campus on Tuesday, March 28th, as a part of the Department of Government's Kessel Memorial Lecture. Good morning, Mr. Packer. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. So you have served as a, a, a journalist covering a number of wars, or has it just been the one in Iraq? I have also um, reported from African countries like Ivory Coast, Sierra Leone, um, Ethiopia, and others that were at war. Um or civil war, but the main one for me, the one that really shaped me as a foreign correspondent was the Iraq war. And I've also written about Afghanistan quite a bit. Now, I've been a journalist all my life and never considered going to cover wars. Is that something you looked into and thought, I'm going to be a a foreign correspondent at some point? I've always um, loved foreign countries and travel. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in my early 20s and um, was a teacher in a little village school in uh, Togo in West Africa. So that that was the experience that drove me to become a writer. Um, and my first book was about my time in Togo called The Village of Waiting. So I've always seen travel and learning about foreign countries and trying to understand them as completely part of what it means to be a writer. Um, But war itself was never my uh, top priority. Uh, I didn't serve in the military, and I didn't really have a lot of interest in getting myself blown up. But when the Iraq war started, um, I had been writing about the arguments over the war in the year running up to it. And as soon as the invasion happened, um, the New Yorker asked me to go to Iraq to cover what at the time, we thought would be the post-war, but it turned out to really only be the beginning of the war. So when you cover something like that, at least I was always taught in journalism school, you need to be unbiased. But now I think journalism has changed today where you feel like a lot of the journalists have uh, a leaning one way or another. How did you go into that back in that time period? Yes, so that was 2003. And I went to Iraq with some, let's say, preconceptions um, that you know led me to expect certain things. I expected um, Iraq to be headed toward a more stable and democratic future than it was. I was there for maybe three days when I realized that pretty much all of my preconceptions had been wrong. So I think it's important for journalists when they report, and this is the great beauty of reporting, <clears throat> to be ready and even eager for their ideas to be exploded. In other words, know what you think going in and take stock of your biases because then you can actually um, be better prepared to to keep them from controlling what you think. If you don't think you have biases, then they're going to control you because we all have them. So I had biases that were wrong, and I was almost happy to turn to writing about Iraq as I found it, because that meant I didn't have to simply um, prove some preconceived notions, but instead got to just listen 
and to learn and to talk to as many different kinds of people as possible. And it was a tragic but also a fascinating experience. And um, I'll never forget and never get over the experience of finding myself continually sort of dizzy with um, the the unpredictability of it all and and the complexity of it all because it really was complex and and then i would come back to the u.s and find that the arguments people were having here were extremely simple and it was frustrating because i i felt that journalists brought something valuable which was first-hand experience which a lot of americans didn't seem to want to hear because they were dug into um fairly well fortified positions can you describe how your perceptions changed when you went in versus when you came out and how, you, as you described, this simplistic version that we have and it can change when you were over there? I'll give you one example. I'll try to make it brief. I was driving around Baghdad with um, an Iraqi psychiatrist who also was a Christian. So he was a minority and he was educated. And my assumption was this would have been someone who, uh, while he might not have welcomed the American invasion, at least saw hope for a, a change in Iraq and was relieved to be rid of the regime of Saddam Hussein. So as we drove around, we were talking about an incident that happened in 1968 when the regime of Saddam Hussein and the Ba'athists had a big public hanging of, I think, 13 Iraqi Jews who were accused of being spies for Israel. And this was right out of Orwell's 1984. And to me, that incident showed just how barbaric the regime of Saddam Hussein had been. And when I mentioned this to my friend, the psychiatrist, he said, no, those were actual spies. Those were real spies. Any country would have hanged them um, because there were good things about the Ba'ath Party. It just took a wrong turn, like in Animal Farm. I'll never forget, he said, like in Animal Farm. And I just felt this kind of wooziness of, I'm going to have to rethink everything. I'm still certain that those Iraqi Jews were not spies, but I'm not at all certain about what the people around me are thinking. If he's thinking that they were spies, they needed to be hanged, and there was a lot of good in the Ba'ath Party, then none of my preconceptions are right and I have to start over again. But as I say, that's an opportunity and it's it's sort of exhilarating as well as confusing. When you look at what's happening now in the Ukraine, can you draw any parallels from your time in Iraq? For me, Ukraine um, is a very simple case. Iraq was not so simple. Um, I was in Ukraine last May. So I went to Ukraine and it was not quite war reporting because I didn't go to the front, but I certainly went to the suburbs of Kiev that had been shelled and destroyed by Russian troops and where mass graves had been uncovered. And I went to Ukraine with a strong feeling um, that there was only one right side in this war, and it was Ukraine. Ukraine was an independent and democratic country they had been trying to follow its own path and was um, invaded and nearly attempted to be destroyed by an imperialist power next door. To me, that was a simple thing. And it remains simple. Nothing about my experience there um, 
made it seem actually murkier, which is strange because usually when you go to a place, the longer you're there, the more complicated it seems and the more you see nuances. Well, I did see nuances, but the nuances were not very important. And what was important was that Ukraine was fighting for its life and for freedom. And that remains true to this day. So Ukraine, in some ways, is a is a easier war to understand. And my biases, I wrote about this in The Atlantic. We cannot be neutral about Ukraine. I don't believe in neutrality. I think it's a false position. I'm not neutral on Ukraine. However, I do strive to be objective, and that's different. Objective is not about neutrality. It's about accuracy and about trying to report exactly what you see. It's like a carpenter trying to get plumb level and square. So objectivity remains maybe an impossible goal, but a goal that we have to pursue as journalists whereas neutrality is a false goal, because I'm not neutral between Ukraine and Russia, and I don't think anyone should be. Well, then when we look at what we see here in the United States from reporters, are we getting an accurate picture? Because we hear the argument that's saying that all the media is making up stuff, so to speak. I mean, I think some media do make up stuff. And with... um, the world of social media, the internet, and now artificial intelligence, it's very hard to know what's made up and what isn't. And confirmation bias, you know, the tendency to look for what will say you were right is a very strong force and everyone is subject to it. I think the media have taken a bad turn. It's partly because of financial pressure. Reporting is expensive. Opinion is cheap. So more and more especially TV journalism, is a bunch of people in a TV studio yakking away instead of a reporter spending days or weeks on a story and giving us something close to the truth. So there is some reason for the public to be um, skeptical. And the other problem, of course, is that the country is so polarized uh, that inevitably the media has become polarized. So at the same moment, it's turning more toward opinion and less toward reporting. It's also turning more toward one set of opinions against another set of opinions. Um, and that's certainly true for cable news. Social media polarizes us into our little bubbles, mm-hmm. um, our little echo chambers. I still insist that there is such a thing as truth and that there is such a thing as media that pursues truth. There's always mistakes, there's always bias and subjectivity, but um, there are newspapers, there are magazines, there are radio programs, there's journalism that um, that is trying to, to find out what's true, and I don't think the public should give up on it, or else we're really giving up on democracy, because democracy has to have some basis in facts and common understanding of what's true. So how does the average person determine what is true and what's not true? I mean, obviously, you've been a journalist for a long time and and seek the truth. And how do we, you know, as the the consuming public, know? It's never easy because most of us don't have direct experience of the stories that we're reading about. Um, And if we do, it may just be anecdotal, our own experience, but not something larger. One way is to find out, does this media outlet check its facts? Does it correct itself when it gets something wrong? To me, admitting that something was mistaken is not a sign of being unreliable. It's a sign of being reliable. Whereas a media outlet that never checks its facts and claims never to make mistakes 
is completely unreliable. So that's one. And another is how much of how, what volume of, of the information you're getting is based on reporting and what volume is based on second or third hand information or even someone in a studio or someone sitting in their basement typing up a social media post. Um, reporting is to be trusted more than opinion, even if not all reporting can be trusted. And finally, does the reporter um, who may have biases, is that person ready to listen to counterfacts and counter ideas and take them seriously? If everything is always flowing in one direction toward one uh, conclusion, then I don't trust it. But if the reporter or the, the media outlet is capable of taking in co contradictory ideas or contradictory uh, facts and trying to work out some notion of the truth based on that, then I, I trust it more because life is contradictory and complex. Nothing ever lines up according to what your own biases want. And, um, and, and so it's partly up to the public to be capable of holding complex facts in their head and not having to, to insist that it all work out in their favor. So it's not just up to the media. It's up to all of us. It's up to the public because that's, again, what democracy is about. George, you will be coming here to do a presentation at Minnesota State University as part of the Kessel Memorial Lecture. And the name of the presentation is The Transformation of American Foreign Policy Establishment, Historical Lessons, and Contemporary Challenges. What is that about? Um, I have to admit, that was not my title. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the audience might hear something a little different. Um, in fact, that's the first time I've heard it. Oh. Um, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I will certainly talk about foreign policy because that's something I write about. And I'll talk about Ukraine. I'll talk about the way in which right now we're in a very ambiguous time in American foreign policy because we're sort of suspended between two events. One, the end of the war in Afghanistan and the failure of that war, which seemed to teach a lesson about stay out. Don't think you can change other people's countries. Don't get involved unless there's some direct American interest. And Ukraine, which seemed to me at least to say we can't afford to stay out because a sovereign country and maybe even part of Europe is under threat. Um, and we have an interest in that country surviving and in there being a, a, a set of rules by which countries cannot be eaten alive by larger countries next door. So those two cut in different directions. And I'll talk about how we should think through the, um, the tension between restraint and intervention, which has always been a, a tension in American foreign policy. But I'm going to talk about other things too, Karen, um, since that title is, is a little narrow. Um, I think I'll talk about language and how our political thinking is shaped by the language we use and how the language we use is shaped by our politics. And I see some bad trends, including AI, that worry me because um, we have to be able to think clearly and speak clearly and write clearly in order to be able to govern ourselves. And I see more and more reasons to wonder whether we can still do that. So what are these trends you're referring to? 
you know, I don't want to give away the whole lecture, but AI is one, mm -hmm. which essentially is leading to a kind of, uh, and it's happening very rapidly, a kind of autocomplete approach to writing and thinking, where you don't have, in the end, to think for yourself because some very smart machine with the entire history of, of uh words of print of the internet in it is going to be able to do it for you but that is a little like someone following gps with no clue about the actual landscape around them and who suddenly finds that gps doesn't have the answer and then they run into trouble um other trends are more directly political i think both the left and the right now resort to um a kind of partisan language. In the case of the left, I wrote an article about this for The Atlantic recently. Equity language has become very popular. And I'll talk in the lecture about what equity language is and why I think it's a, the wrong direction. Um, and on the right, there's a kind of a language of contempt and insult that's become um, sort of automatic, again, sort of autocomplete, where you don't have to think through what you're saying and what its effects are, but instead you essentially click uh, on something it, that's been coded into your brain and out come the words. And the words are destructive and not uh, words that allow for any kind of compromise or um, deliberation, which is, again, what I think democracy requires. So I'll talk about some of those things and how language is not just the business of writers, but the business of everyone. Anything else we might find that would be of interest to the public in terms of what you're going to be talking about? I think that covers a lot. Okay. Um, I could suggest that if people really want to know sort of background to my thinking, they could read either my most recent book, which is a short book called Last Best Hope, or a piece of that book that was excerpted from the Atlantic called The Four Americas, which talks about how the country is split, not just red and blue, but red and blue in turn are split internally into each into two different kinds of uh, idea about America. So I'll be talking about that a little bit, too. We are talking with George Packer, an acclaimed journalist and award-winning author, who is going to be speaking here at Minnesota State University as part of the Kessel Memorial Lecture. That is on Tuesday, March 28th. It's at 7 p.m. in the Ostrander Auditorium here on the campus at Minnesota State in the Centennial Student Union. I want to thank you so much for your time, and I hope you enjoy your stay in Minnesota with maybe we'll still have snow when, when you get here probably. I'll take snow, even if it's dirty snow. Right. <laughs> Thanks. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it, and all the best to you. You too. Bye-bye.